Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am, as always, your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Lauren Hunter, who is a doctoral student at Tulane University. She's a mental health professional and an expert in aging, death, and dying. Lauren, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So your sister is a previous guest of the show. Emily was a fantastic guest. And I became uh, exposed to your work and your thinking through her, through your Instagram account of all places where you talk about existentialism, aging, death, and dying. These are all big interest areas of mine, and I think they are ill-considered and seldom discussed in Western culture. So I'm I'm happy that you're here today to kind of walk us through it. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So let's start off with the cultural piece. Um, I spent some time in, in Asia, in, in Manila, Philippines in, in particular, and it was interesting for me, you know, a fish doesn't know it's wet and all, all that. It was interesting for me to examine my own culture through the lens of, of Filipino critiques of my culture. And the number one critique I got by a a mile uh, was around the American treatment of the elderly. They thought that we treated the the aging and the elderly atrociously and and sort of couldn't believe that we had independent living homes for people and that we didn't just let them age in place. So help us understand attitudes around aging, death, and dying as they exist across the globe? And and how particular is the Western attitude about these things relative to the rest of the world? I think that is an excellent observation. And there are stark differences in attitudes towards aging, especially broadly speaking, between the Eastern point of view and the Western point of view. And I think before talking about the attitude we have towards aging, we first have to really take a look at cultural differences and cultural values and norms, because those are what dictate our perception and attitudes. So broadly speaking, um, and I'm sure this will make sense to you, broadly speaking, Eastern values really embody collectivism, duty, interdependence, Whereas Western values and specifically American values, we really um, prioritize independence, innovation, and self-reliance. And so having that in mind, it really is no surprise that the American perspective towards aging is not so great because aging is characterized as the opposite of American values because as we age, Uh, we have a decline in independence and reduced self-reliance. And that makes us feel super, super duper uncomfortable. And I think that is really what molds our um, view of us personally aging and our treatment of older individuals. What do we see in sort of the outcomes literature when you think about things like wellness and happiness and, and sort of other sort of corresponding outcomes 
when you compare, broadly speaking, the East to the West, how do these, these differing attitudes manifest themselves in the outcomes for people who are themselves aging? So there is a field of anthropological literature that investigates this. And so this is where that is where I'm getting the data that I'm going to talk about. In America, there's a lot of anxiety about aging and anti-aging messages are really pervasive in our media. And that signals to us that aging is bad. Hmm. Not only that aging is bad, but here's a cure. Here's a cream and here's a surgery or here's a diet. And if you do those things, you can combat aging. And when those inevitably fail, we feel like failures or we feel like we're faulty. Um, we feel ashamed and embarrassed about totally normal and healthy aging processes. So a lot of Americans struggle with the aging body. So there's an article uh, written by Sarah Lamb, 2019, sorry, 2009. She spent time in India. And so she wrote an article comparing the Indian view of aging versus the American view of aging. And evidently in India, death is talked about frequently and openly, same in healthy groups and young people and also in older people. So because it is just so openly talked about, it's less stigmatized. And so she felt like there was less urgency to cure aging or to stop it. It felt very normal and healthy. Whereas in America, she felt like the aging population was busy, 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 you know, just trying to do all they could to, um, you know, feel young and maintain their youthful look. So as we become aware of these cultural differences, let's say, you know, first step is to highlight them. We become aware that they are, you know, choices, they're cultural values and not just, you know, uh, the way things have to be. If we want to sort of practice a more Eastern approach to aging in our own lives and maybe, uh, maybe not push back so hard against the aging process and embrace more of what that looks like, where can we begin and how can we begin to incorporate that into our own sort of mental health practice? Mm, that's a great question because it's all about awareness, you know, increasing awareness of, of what aging is. And I think, you know, a great first step is to educate yourself on the aging process so that, you know, when you get to a certain time and you notice something about your body instead of immediately feeling bad about yourself, feeling that, oh, I'm gaining weight. I must not be exercising more. I must not be eating well. But but you realize that, wow, you know, I'm 45. My metabolism is slowing. My body is different and that's okay. And making friends with the state of your body where it is. And also making friends with who you were yesterday and making friends with who you envision yourself to become. Yeah, I feel extremely targeted by those comments, but we're gonna. <laughs> just oh no! I'm I just. No, it, it's some. It's interesting. It's interesting in my own life, right? My uh, my sister in law passed away in her early thirties, and that event fundamentally changed the way that I think about aging, right? Because you encounter some of these things. Like, oh wow, you know, gaining a little weight, hair's falling out, whatever it is, you know, lots mm -hmm. of grays, and you go, you know what? This beats 
this beats the alternative and it's a blessing. And it really was a sea change in the way that I thought about those things. So we as a country, though, are, are undergoing a profound graying nationally that's unprecedented in our history. Just about 12, 13 years from now, the estimate is that there will be more retirement aged Americans, 65 plus, than there are children, which is a dramatic change from the way that things have been historically Can you talk a bit about this graying broadly? What is the state of aging in America? Are we ready for this wave of of older people? And what are sort of the societal implications for this? So what you are talking about is referred to as the silver tsunami in in aging circles. I'm not sure if you've heard of that. Never Um, know. So yes, it is certainly a sea of change, a sea of silver that we are expecting. Yes, uh, there are more and more people of retirement age and less and less people of working age. And this is due to people living longer because of medical advancements, technology, better nutrition and hygiene, um, and just overall wellness. It's also due to the baby boomers and people in the 40s foresaw this coming inevitably, you know, what will our country look like with this huge boom in babies being born? And so here we are. And then lastly, people are having fewer babies. People are having babies later in life and having a lower number of them. And so that is where we are right now. So with less working, sorry, yeah, with less working aged people and more Uh, dependent people, a big concern is what this will look like for the GDP, which will inevitably slow. What Mm. that will exactly look like, I can't speak to that. What is a concern is the status of our social security system, where it is already starting to strain. Um, You know, we are really worried that about whether or not working aged people will be able to support the massive amount of retirees. And poverty is already a growing concern among senior adults. Mm-hmm. I hear worries about the healthcare system, which is which is already overwhelmed, even pre-pandemic. This is because it's great that we're living longer, but the downside is the longer we live, the more time we have to develop chronic illness. So that's a lot of medication, a lot of doctor visits, a lot of emergency room visits. And so that's the bad and the ugly, right? Mm, Yeah. I am an optimist by nature, though. Uh, I feel like anytime there has been future uncertainty, humans have a tendency to catastrophize and think that it's going to be the end of the world and feel very doomy and gloomy. And I think that that, that's a very restrictive perspective against human ingenuity, creativity, and potential. I really do believe that, and trust me, I have tried to be more cynical. (laughs) I've tried it and it's, you know, I just can't get there. I truly believe that we will adapt to the needs of the silver tsunami. I really believe that entrepreneurs will um, capitalize on the needs of the silver tsunami. More doctors will specialize in geriatrics, more retirement communities will pop up. And so, because I can't help but compare it with the pandemic where, and we are still in the midst of the pandemic, but if we could rewind to two years ago, people were really scared about the future. People thought that we would never be able to socialize again. Everything would be different. 
And if you look around now, there's actually been a, a lot of positive change. More people can work from home, which is actually very convenient for a lot of people. And people can still go to concerts and socialize. And so it ended up not being as bad as, as some people thought. Yeah, one of the things in, we'll call it March, April of 2020, it's hard, all the years are sort of running, all the COVID years are sort of running together now. But I think very early in the pandemic, you saw these think pieces come out that said things like, you know, yeah, we'll never shake hands again. You know, we'll never go to a big conference again. And the thing is, humankind is much more adaptable than we give ourselves credit for. And uh, all of the happiness literature says this, too. You know, we are, for, for better or worse, we're, we're capable of enduring things that are far outside of our comfort zone, rallying and, and coping with those changes. I'm sure we'll cope with this one as well. One of the things that we're seeing with this silver tsunami, which is a new term for me, but one of the things that we're seeing is that older Americans are working longer. So in in 2018, 24% of men and and 16% of women 65 and older were in the labor force. By four years from now, those numbers are expected to be 26% and 18% respectively. So quite a few more folks working past the traditional 65 years you know, this seems like a mixed bag to me. What what are the pros and cons of working uh, past what has historically been thought of as this sort of magical timeline for retirement? Yeah. And so I am pro longer working life. And I think it's a great thing that people are able to work longer, especially if they are working longer voluntarily, just out of the love of what they do. Because in history, before recently, people would retire out of sickness, even if they still had those quantitative skills, the social skills, they had everything mentally, but they would have to retire out of sickness. Health is improving among older adults, which is really enabling healthier work lives. Longer work lives are also associated with improved health um, and continued sense of identity. It also gives you a longer earning potential to plan for retirement. And and I also think that by working longer, it can help mitigate the social security situation we just talked about to kind of stagger stagger retirement among um, the baby boomers. And also, a lot of people are choosing to do partial retirement which means that they are partially retired and they are enlisting in what are what is called a, a bridge job, which is a job that is typically very flexible and accommodating to lifestyle, the, uh, the retirement lifestyle. And I think it's a great transition option to uh, have from going from full-time employment to full-time retirement because that, that adjustment is quite a shock to a lot of people. A few cons that I'm thinking about is that it may be harder for younger people to attain jobs with older people staying in the workforce longer, mm-hmm. which um, which is not great. And the other one I thought of, another con I thought of is that uh, some people are staying, like are not retiring out of necessity, not from choice because their retirement financial plan might not be there yet, which is which is kind of sad. I think it's time to rethink some of these hard and fast rules. We've, I think at least stereotypically, we've had this sort of uh, conceptualization of work like, well, I'm going to work 
super, super hard until I'm 65. And then when I'm 65 and one day old, I'm going to quit. And then I'm going to live this entire life of leisure. I don't think it has to be that binary. And a lot of those ages were set at a time when realities around aging were very different. You could perhaps speak to the specifics there, but I know that, you know, like when social security was in place, people's life expectancy was far different than it is today. I mean, at 65 years old, I I have three young children. And I remember when my youngest was born, the nurse saying like, wow, she has a great chance of living to be a hundred, you know, like she has like a, whatever, one in three chance of living to be a, a centenarian. And when you think that you're going to retire at 65 and then potentially have 40 years of, of leisure, like that, that has implications financially, psychologically. And, you know, the other thing that I would, I would draw people's attention to longtime listeners of the show will know I'm a big fan of the, the positive psychology framework called the PERMA model uh, of happiness. And the P is for positive experiences, like fun, basically. The E is for engagement, uh, a deep work. R is for relationships, the M is for meaning, working for something bigger than yourself, and the A is advancement, like Mm. learning new things, getting better than you were the day before, and work ticks so many of those boxes. I mean, if you're working a job you love, you're meeting people, you're working for something bigger than yourself, you're having fun, you're learning new things, you're getting better, And so that's a real boon to people, I think. So as long as they're doing it because they love it and not because it's perhaps this dire necessity. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to rethink the binaries around, I'm going to work, you know, sort of miserably for 40 years. And then I'm going to have however many years of, of just laying by the beach. We have to flip that script a little bit. I 100% agree with you. And I have a real life example to, mm-hmm. uh, to uh, convey the increased longevity. Uh, So you're right. When we first had the retirement age at 65, really people were expected to die at 70, 75. Mm -hmm. Now the average, averaging men and women, the average is 78. So my husband's grandfather, um, he retired in his sixties, ended up living 30 more years. And I mean, he only died this past year at 90, at 94 and 95. And I mean, it was just kind of aimless, you know, like, you know, I think we do need to rethink the binary and, you know, find jobs or forms of employment that we really love and that we want to continue because they really do provide such a sense of responsibility, fulfillment and, and a purpose and identity. And just cutting that off from your life is a huge shock. And, and there is actually research to show that early retirement, for example, like if you elect to retire before 67, there is a correlation between early retirement and higher mortality. Mm. And that, yeah. So you've anticipated my my next question beautifully. There's this movement in my little world, right? Called FIRE, financial independence, retire early. There's a lot I like about the movement. I, I It encourages thrift, minimalism, sound investing principles. All of that's really great stuff. Uh, but I think, again, sometimes it's rooted in this idea of I'm going to work this, you know, sort of miserable 80-hour job that pays me as much money as I can get my hands on. I'm going to save a huge sum of it. I'm going to invest it aggressively. And then I can be freed from the shackles of wage slavery I mean, there's a lot to like about work. And I think sometimes we, 
I think sometimes we in the financial services industry, we're so worried about getting that number, right? That that number that's going to see you through at a three or a four percent withdrawal rate. And we don't focus enough on the realities of how much of that psychological scaffolding falls away when we retire. How can we sort of can you speak to the mental game of retirement a little bit? How can we sort of mentally ready ourselves for retirement outside of that number? Uh, I love this question because retirement is something I want to uh, research for my dissertation later on because retirement is such a huge milestone. And many people think that once they hit retirement age, they will have everything figured out. They will be happy. They will you know, reap the rewards of all of their hard work. And I think that is a human mentality. We always think if we get this, this, and this, then we'll be happy. Mm. Um, but then we get there and it can be very unfulfilling. And so there are, there's, so there's a lot of literature on um, mental health after retirement. On one hand, some people's health very much benefit from retirement because they are relieved from the stresses of work. Mm -hmm. They have more time for leisure activities, physical activity, and sleep. Sleep is a big one. On the other hand, uh, retirement can be very detrimental to uh, health because there's uh, people can become depressed, feel aimless, engage in more smoking and drinking, experience reduced social contact, uh, less income and a lost sense of purpose. And so, yes, how, how can we avoid that? How can we retire well? And so in my clinical experience uh, in working with older adults, a happy and healthy retirement really I think you really characterized it very perfectly with the PERMA model. Um, I actually haven't heard of the PERMA, PERMA model before, but really it's somebody who is continuing to challenge themselves, engage mentally and emotionally and socially, somebody who is adapting to their new routine, because as humans, we love structure. When you think about it, from the time we are five years old, when we go into kindergarten and you have kids, are we five years old when we go into kindergarten? Yeah. So my, my five-year-old's in preschool. My other five-year-old went to kindergarten just based on birthdays, but yeah, about five or six. Five, five, so even preschool is like from five to 67, we have an agenda, right? Mm -hmm. And even, even people who say they don't like structure under, they like a certain level of structure because that's yeah. just the way humans are. Um, so spending, you know, 60 plus years having a, having an agenda, having people rely on you, feeling the sense of responsibility, deadline assignments, having no structure suddenly can be really shocking. So I think a healthy um, retirement can look like a person who has been creative in, in their new life, somebody who's created a routine, created a structure, and they have things to look forward to. Yeah. Yeah. Using that PERMA model again, where will you get your relationships, right? How will you measure that advancement? Maybe you're going to be getting better at guitar or golf or swimming or a hundred different things. It may not be work, but we still need structure. We still need advancement. We still need deep work. It, it mm -hmm. may not be, you know, working, working for the man anymore, but it, we, we still need that deep engagement, that flow, all of that's important, and I think we need to prepare for it. So there's interesting um, there's interesting research around increasing salience about aging when it comes to making financial decisions. So specifically, retirement researchers found that when 
they aged people's faces using computer technology, right? So you look like, what are you like 30 now? So instead of the the 30 year old you, you look like the 80 year old you. And they found that when people did this and could connect with this sort of age progressed version of themselves, that they made better financial decisions and that they were more likely to save. And so I think uh, whether it be from a physical, a psychological or a financial standpoint, I think some of the reasons why we don't take better care of ourselves and our financial lives is because it doesn't seem real to us, right? The idea of 80-year-old, 90-year-old Daniel doesn't seem very vivid or very salient. Mm -hmm. Are Are there practical things that we can do to connect with the reality of our older selves, if that makes sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. And the intervention that you described with the, like the 3d modeling, it Mm -hmm. sounds like a very high tech version Mm -hmm. of a clinical strategy that I'm about to tell you about. And really it's where you have a piece of paper and you ask your client to draw a line and you say one end is birth. The other end is death. Where do you fall on that line? Mm. And that can be a very powerful awakening experience to put you in the present moment to really engage you with this existential truth that, whoa, I'm finite. And you, you, you're saying that you have found research that that awareness really improves financial readiness. And I think it would go beyond that and improve wellness across the board because when you realize that your time is finite, you realize that, um, excuse me, if you realize that your life is finite, you realize that time is precious, which mm. shapes your values, prior priorities, and choices. What, you know, you're, you're probably familiar with research by Katie Milkman and others around this fresh start effect, which finds that when people have these sort of milestone birthday, birthdays, 30, 40, mm. 50, they're much more likely to start a business, run a marathon, do do sort of a host of things that they've always wanted to do. Because I think we have often accompanied by these milestone birthdays or other big events, we have these sort of brushes with our own finitude and and this understanding that like, hey, I'm halfway there, right? I mean, I, I certainly did when I turned 40, like, yikes. You know, I'm I'm halfway done on average. So what am I going to do with the rest of my time? And I think those moments ought to be embraced and cherished and not run from. And, you know, mm-hmm. taking it back to the beginning of our conversation, it takes a cultural shift. It takes a mindset shift to when you have one of these moments of introspection to not have your first impulse to be whatever, buy a Porsche or some skin cream, but rather to like, you know, but but rather to think about how you can better apply yourself and sort of wring every last bit of goodness out of, out of the years you have left. You took the words out of my mouth because that is something I wanted to talk about next, because I was going to first thank you for uh, the story that you shared at the top of our conversation about how when your relative passed away, it was an awakening experience. And that's sort of what you just said now. Um, everyone has brushes with with these moments that really wake you up to yeah, the finitude of life, that death is inevitable, that we are vulnerable. We are very vulnerable and exposed. And uh, I encourage people to lean into those moments because those moments are deeply threatening 
And it's a survival response to avoid, suppress, and ignore because they they're they're the feelings are tremendous and they can feel very overwhelming. But I promise you, if you can push through those feelings and process them and talk, talk about them, you come out on the on the other side with a greater sense of being and a more authentic sense of self. So the ideas that you and I are, are batting back and forth here and we're you know nodding our heads and we're in broad agreement here, it's because we're both uh, fans of this school of thought called existentialism, right? So when your sister was posting your content on Instagram, a big part of the reason I was drawn to it is because uh, of your focus on existentialism. Now, a quick digression, when I was in grad school, psychologists have to sort of pick a school of thought, right? They want, are you going to be, you know, psychodynamic? Will you be a humanist? Will you be cognitive behavioral? There's a host of ones. And, and as I was studying the various sort of schools of thought of therapy, the one that, uh, the, the one that spoke to me the most by a mile was this existential approach to, to thinking about life. And so existentialism is sort of notoriously hard to define. So, I'm, and, and many of who we consider to be existentialists themselves rejected that title. <laughs> so I'm going to put you on the spot and maybe ask you to do the impossible, but how do you, uh, you know, how would you kind of offer a, a colloquial definition of existentialism and, and how practically can you apply it to your life to improve, improve the way you live? First, I want to say you must be my soul brother, because when I was when I was it, it was the same thing when I was getting my master's in clinical mental health counseling. They really want you to find a theoretical orientation. And I do believe it's extremely important because it ends up shaping your approach of how you encounter other people and how you help your clients problem solve. And sometimes the theoretical orientation is so profound that it shapes your personal life. And, and so that is exactly what happened to me and the existential orientation, um, theoretical orientation. It really resonated with me and it gave me the language to a lot of problems I had been struggling with, which I don't mind sharing, uh, sharing later on. But first you, you're asking, how would I describe, you know, in layman's terms, existentialism or the existential approach? Well, I think the reason why a lot of our existential philosophers and role models, they reject the term, they reject being called an existentialist because it really is less of a rule book. It's a, it's less of a set of rules and more of a perspective, more of an approach to life. Hmm. And so really existentialism, in my opinion, is founded on the four truths of existence. And these are known as the four givens and Irvin Yalom, who is my personal hero in the field. He, these, are, these are his words essentially, but first, the first truth one must accept is that death is inevitable. Secondly, we are ultimately isolated. Yes, friends and family color our lives and make us better and they make us happy. But ultimately, we are born alone and we we die alone. And so the burden of making choices and uh, carving the path of our own life really relies on us. Third is that life is seemingly meaningless uh, because so many things don't make sense. So many things are absurd, yet humans are meaning-making creatures. And so we have this drive to make sense of the world around us, even though at times it feels that nothing makes sense at all. And then lastly, 
we there, we have a burden of responsibility that um, as much as we would love an ultimate rescuer to tell us what to do to be happy, you know, tell us all of the right choices that doesn't exist. It has to come from us. And so really the existential approach is embodying those truths and having those guide your decision-making and guiding and guiding your relationships and guiding your choices. Now, so I'm a huge, huge Yalom fan. Uh, his his books on group psychotherapy and existential psychotherapy are great. For, for those listening who don't want to read a 500-page treatise on group psychotherapy, uh, his book, Love's Executioner, is a really fantastic, very readable way to get access to some of these ideas and, and get sort of uh, be a fly on the wall of the, of the therapist's couch, I guess. Uh, so I'd absolutely recommend that. I think a lot of the ways that existentialism get talked about are kind of cartoonish and sort of um, uh, overly negative. And you hear something like these givens of existence, like isolation, like no one can do your living or dying for you. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a heavy thought, right? That's kind of a heavy thing. And it's kind of a depressing thing, I think, if you don't stop and reflect on it. But I think what what the existentialist would have you do is reflect on that truth, embrace it, warts and all, and get busy living, right? And 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 sort of embrace that responsibility that you talked about. My favorite, uh, my favorite Viktor Frankl quote. Well, one of my favorite Viktor Frankl quotes. He talks about, you know, we we have a Statue of Liberty on the East Coast, and it should be it should be balanced by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. Like we we have mm-hmm. these things. We have freedom, but but we also have a, a responsibility to do something with that freedom. So I think this existential approach, it, it really has death awareness and isolation awareness at its core. And that's that's not a depressing thing, right? This sense, uh, uh, you know, the, the flip side of isolation is, is empowerment and the flip side of death is urgency. Mm-hmm. And so I think that too many people think of existentialism as this sort of left bank French phenomenon that doesn't have much play in our modern world. But I hope listeners will take a minute and explore these ideas a bit. The ideas of Viktor Frankl, Soren Kierkegaard, Yalom, Mm -hmm. others, because I do think they're powerfully inform the way you mold a life, the way you take responsibility for your life, and the way you get the the best out of every moment of your life. So I'll step down off my existential soapbox now, but this has been, this has been a philosophy that's done me a world of good personally. And so uh, apologizing for, for evangelizing it so hard, perhaps. Well, same here. I, I, I could, I can't stop talking about it. People are like, Lauren, stop talking about it. <laughs> it's just, it, it's been really transformative for me as well. And, you know, a quote by Maury Schwartz, who is a professor of sociology, he sort of encapsulated what you're talking about. And he said, learn how to die and you learn how to live. By learning how to die, you realize that your time is limited and therefore that time really matters. And it just really shapes you um, just tremendously. And one last quote by Thomas Hardy because it is depress like it is depressing. We we are going to die. It's really depressing. And existentialism is really intimidating, which is what turns people away because it is so sad. But if you can accept that, yeah, that is sad. 
I am going to die one day. My friends, my loved ones are going to die one day. And if you grieve that loss, if you take a full look at the hardest parts of life, you reap the best parts of life. And so Thomas Hardy said, a way to the better there be, it exacts a full look at the worst. Mm. So you have to look at the underbelly of life to really enjoy the sunshine. So there's fascinating research around death awareness from the psychological literature that shows that if you remind someone of their death, right? So I think the study divided people into two, you know, experimental and the control group, uh, you know, the control group just has to, uh, they read a blurb about someone who's committed a crime and they have to pass down a judgment, right? Mm-hmm. Or no, they, they write, they write a paragraph about a puppy or something, right? And then mm-hmm. they have to, they have to pass down a judgment on this, this person in this vignette. The second group is reminded of their death, right? They're like, okay, write a paragraph about, you know, the fact that you're going to someday die and leave everyone behind. And now you have to, 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 to pass down the judgment on this person in the vignette. The people who were reminded of their death are mean, they're punitive, they throw harsher sentences at them. I mean, we know just anecdotally and experimentally that people don't like to think about their, uh, you know, the inevitability of their own passing. How can we, and like most of the folks that listen to this are financial professionals, they're having conversations with their clients around insurance needs, end of life planning, estate planning, like uh, talking with clients about about death and disability and illness, all these things are part and parcel of the job. But we know from the experimental research that we kind of make people angry and surly in the process. Is there a way that we can examine this underbelly that you've talked about in a way that's maybe kinder and gentler and gets them the best parts of it without the worst parts, I guess? So I read what you're talking about in a book called Worm at the Core. Mm. And so they talk about the the idea that we are we all have death terror and we have reactions to that death terror and so what you're describing is that if people were reminded at their own death they would really retaliate on people and a lot of times unjustly so they'd be cruel and harsh and i think the key word there is that it's a reaction it's a reaction that is not authentic. It's a uh, it's impulsive, and I mean, I think the only way to lessen the blow is just to go there, like turn inward, and instead of being vindictive and turning externally, like ha- take that opportunity to really process the the end of your life, and that you know life is short. So the the last question here, I'll I'll kind of put you on the spot. Um, if people, if people have not turned this off <laughs> oh, no. at this point, out of, uh, out of their own death anxiety, if people, if people are hanging with us and they want to learn more about existentialism and some of the ideas that you've talked about, um, and, and how they can use these on behalf of their clients, where would you, where would you tell people to start with reading? We've, we've talked about love's executioner. What, what else would you tell people to read to kind of get a grasp on, on practical existentialism? The number one most helpful book, uh, that most helpful book to me is Staring at the Sun by Irvin Yalom. Mm-hmm. And this is a great book because a lot of his other books, he, he, he writes them with the mindset of his audience being 
mental health, budding mental health professionals. But I'm under the impression he wrote Staring at the Sun to be for anyone. They can be for people who are struggling with death anxiety themselves or psychotherapists wanting to um, practice therapy from an existential perspective. I've read it several times. I have it dog-eared. He really talks about existentialism and embracing death anxiety um, in layman's terms, very practical terms. And he also gives uh, vignettes of, um, of powerful stories, powerful dreams that have been really helpful and clinical strategies. Um, like I mentioned earlier, another book is called Worm at the Core. And those authors are Greenberg, Solomon, and Pajitsky. And so they just describe the observation of death terror, how we're all terrified of death. And this is all manifested deep inside of us and how it makes us do wacky things to, uh, to make that terror go away or to make the pain of our inevitable fate uh, go away. And then lastly, this one's kind of different. It's called Immortal Diamond. And this is by Richard Rohr, and he is a Franciscan priest. And it's a very good book on authenticity and being the person you want to be. Yeah, thank you. Great. Three great suggestions. You know, the thing I would say here in imparting to the listeners is it's easy to it's easy to dismiss some of these notions. I think they sound grand and dramatic and like death anxiety and, you know, fear of death. Like that's not me. Uh, but it is one of those concepts where once you really dig into it, you do start to see it everywhere, mm. including including in your own behavior. So I hope people will will dig in a little bit and, and play with these ideas a bit. Thank you, uh, Lauren, so much. If people want to, to follow your journey and follow your work and, and some of the great stats and things that you share, uh, where where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram. My handle is at old underscore Methuselah. And I, that's really the number way, number one way to see my work, get in contact with me. Um, yeah, that's the way to go. Old Methuselah. That is an all time great handle. <laughs> Oldest person in the Bible, old Methuselah. Very thank good. <laughs> Very good. I love it. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming and having this, not an easy conversation to have, but you did it with, with grace and, and brilliance. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you. It was so much fun to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.